currently in the medical kind of realm, for example, if a man comes into the doctor's office complaining of erectile dysfunction, the current paradigm is to prescribe some sort of erectile dysfunction medication. This is not correct. This is not the standard of care. It should not be the standard of care. If if anyone suffers from erectile dysfunction and they go see their doctor, they need to be screened for high cholesterol, for diabetes, for um, thyroid dysfunction. They need to be tested for medical causes of this before even having a conversation about prescription medications. Hey friends, Jeffrey Wu here, and welcome to another episode of the HVMN Podcast. This week, we talk metabolic health and how it relates to a topic we haven't explored much before, sex and sexual health. For example, how can insulin resistance affect your sex life? Can sexual dysfunction for both men and women actually be a symptom of a deeper root cause related to metabolism? In general, I think we should have more informed, long-form discussions on sex. It's really an important part of life and culture. Joining me in the discussion is Dr. Priyanka Wally. She's a returning guest, and she's a San Francisco-based doctor with expertise in metabolic health, obesity medicine, and the application of low-carb ketogenic diets. If you're tuning in via audio, remember to hit that subscribe button for weekly episodes. For folks on YouTube, please subscribe and hit that bell to enable post notifications. Without further ado, let's get right to it. I know we wanted to talk about sexual health and sex broadly. Of course, something that all humans think about at some form, not necessarily my academic or intellectual wheelhouse, but obviously something that we all have personal experiences or thoughts about. So happy to engage on all those fronts. Well, anyone that's born basically- There are asexual people. No, but you can be asexual, but you were still born from from someone. Yeah, so everybody has something to do with sex. So it is pertinent to everyone. Yeah. Whether you want to procreate or not or whatever, it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is. There are still some health-related issues that I definitely want people to know about Yeah, absolutely. I don't think is common knowledge. Yeah, I mean, my sense of it is that sexual function is one of the most downstream obvious effects of healthy function. Exactly. I think it's a good benchmark or a good... A prediction factor around if you can't have sexual function or like you're some sort of dysfunction, you're probably not healthy. Exactly. That's exactly it. And I think there's a big problem right now in the medical community where people don't feel comfortable talking to their doctors about their Mm. sexual health. They think maybe it's not pertinent or they're embarrassed about it. And I think that shouldn't be the case at all. If people out there listening are having sexual problems, they should bring it up to their doctor. Yeah, I think that aspect's actually more interesting to me. I think the sociological effects where I think within just like recent online discussions, there's like the incels, the involuntary celibates. There's, I would say, more and more discussion around egg freezing and all of that. So I think we can touch upon the physiological side as well as the sociological side given the changing demographics and the changing behaviors of humans. So a lot to dive into. Should we toast with a shot of ketone here? I would love to toast with you. I said I would only agree to do this podcast if we were going to toast ketones. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Are we going to shoot this or are we going to sip it? No, I can't shoot this. It's too strong for me. (laughs) I only do sips at a time. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll I, I was telling him I keep it in my purse and I take sips slowly. 
over the course of however much period. Yeah, how's your experience with the Esther been so far? So I like it. One of the things I like about this, as opposed to other kind of similar-ish products or exogenous ketones, ketones, is that it's pure, that you don't put anything in it. But I mean, real talk, I'm not going to lie, it tastes super bitter. But that doesn't bother me, actually. I don't mind that at all. But I could see how if you were someone who's more sugar addicted, it would be problematic. But yeah, no, it's cool. What I I do, I just, I keep it in my purse with me. And if there's a situation where, let's say, I'm on the go and I don't have access to food for whatever reason, sometimes it's super helpful. I just take a sip and then go on. I'm not like downing it and then like doing a one-hour hardcore workout or anything like that. I'm just like a busy professional and yeah, yeah I mean, it I works think that, for me. Yeah, I think that's a use case that we want to explore more and more. Obviously, a lot of our customers today are involved with extreme athletic performances or military. And I think that the broader use case hopefully is busy professionals and eventually just part of a daily caloric content for people. Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, it's super strong. I mean, it's like a... Str- it's yeah, like you feel a very, it, right? Like you've done the finger prick on yourself, potent. right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the average person out there doesn't necessarily need to ingest such high intense doses. Yeah. And it obviously has different effects, like versus someone who's kind of in a light ketosis at baseline. What I've noticed is that because my ketone levels typically at baseline are in the like one and a half region, more or less. That's solid. Yeah. Yeah. But when I'll take a sip, it'll bump up to like two-ish. I'm not going into the fives. I don't think I need to. I'm chilling. You know what I mean? And it works for me. Yeah, exactly. So some of these insights hopefully will have some products to address that where it's less intense and more sippable and and a better price point. So stay tuned. Yeah, we're we're thinking all about that. I mean, I think that's like the broader use case. Like obviously not everyone is like a Navy SEAL or a professional cyclist. Exactly. Sometimes you're just a regular female living in San Francisco (laughs) trying to get by. I mean, you're pretty spectacular in terms of your background as a doctor, obviously. I'm also curious to hear about like the comedian side of things as well. I mean, obviously that's a very interesting combination of your skill set and interests. But yeah, I mean, maybe we should start with just following from our last conversation probably 9 to 12 months ago, how has the community evolved and shifted the language on ketogenic diets? I mean, from our perspective in our community, we've just seen a lot of <clears throat> this notion maybe a year or two years ago, still kind of fringe. Now it's fairly, I would say probably at least half the people that I talk to are interested, familiar, have heard of it, at least have some sort of opinion on keto. Absolutely. People are talking about low-carb diets now yeah. more than they were 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I was walking downtown yeah. the other day and I overheard a conversation and this guy in the conversation, and I quote, was like, yeah, I don't eat carbs. I haven't eaten carbs for a while. And yeah. this was a random downtown yeah. experience. So people are talking about it. it's in the news now. You know, articles are coming out. Movie stars are talking about their experiences. So it's becoming more popular. And who knows if this is just the tipping point? I have a couple of theories. Like if enough people are talking about something, eventually it'll get the attention. The other aspect is that the obesity epidemic is worsening, right? So 50% of Americans are now pre-diabetic. Could it just be that we're all getting so sick now that people are asking for solutions? And now this is the obvious logical answer. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of both. In your clinical practice, are you just seeing more interest in 
going on a ketogenic or low-carb intervention. Most of the people that kind of approach me at this point are looking for guidance in that department. Yeah. So maybe one, two, three years ago, was it more you having to introduce people into a ketogenic lifestyle? Whereas now, maybe it's shifted more towards, what, 75% people just coming into your practice? Exactly, okay. exactly. And so um, I'm involved at UCSF, the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. We just finished a six-month trial where we took people with type 2 diabetes and we put them on a ketogenic diet. Mm. And we looked at two groups. One got mindfulness training, the other one didn't. That phase has now ended, and we're recruiting now for a one-year trial for this. And what we're finding with the people that we're interviewing to bring on to this trial is that we have many more people now saying like, oh, well, I tried a keto diet or like I tried Atkins, like I have experience with that, which when we were recruiting the last time was not the case. So the word's out for sure. And that can be a good or bad thing because people who say that they're doing keto, but they're actually doing it wrong and then they have side effects from it can actually be really detrimental. So I don't know what to say. I do think it's a good thing that people are becoming more aware that, for example, eating sugar is really harmful for your health. I'm glad that that language is becoming more popular. And I think it, it is an overall good thing if more people know about this because eventually the food market and the economy of the food that we eat and sell, the entire food industry will actually change. I think this is going to take longer, though. I think this will take at least 10 years, not something that's going to happen by the end of this year or next year. Yeah, we're changing culture. We're changing culture, culture for sure. culture is ingrained in how you're raised, what kind of propaganda slash news you're just inculcated as you're growing up, so... Absolutely. I mean, it's reverse programming the previous generation and hopefully educating people in the next generation, the current generation in a more enlightened path for dietary considerations. And, you know, in at least in my practice, I am seeing the damaging effects of the low fat movement. There's a lot of people that I'll see and they have nutritional deficiencies in certain important fat-soluble vitamins because they were on a very low-fat diet for all these years. They have an omega deficiency or they're vitamin A deficient. You know, really important things that are important for life. This is the aftermath of the low-fat movement. They were doing the advice that they thought was best for them at that time, and now we're sort of repairing the body at that stage. So it's really crazy if you think about it. I try not to think about it too much because I think it can get overwhelming. Well, I think on some of the low-carb conferences, it becomes almost dogmatic or religious. It becomes culty where... It's like, oh, the low-carb people are being oppressed. And I think there's some truth to that in terms of the language is pretty aggressive. I would say on either side. But I don't know if that's the best strategy to convince people, right? Like, I don't think people want to be like, oh, the low-carb people are being demonized or like just propaganda against us. I think just having open conversations where we can just talk about data talk about people's clinical experiences, which I think are very, very valuable. And look, you know, I don't think there's one diet for the world. You know what I mean? I think at the end of the day, diets should be tailored to the individual, to the individual's preferences, lifestyle, and their metabolic profile. So we shouldn't be proselytizing one diet for the entire human race. You know what I mean? And I think like, yeah, there is a lot of like cult activity with both camps, like the low carb camp can get really intense. I I call them the carbonati sometimes. (laughs) Like like the vegan camp can get really intense. You know, PETA can get violent sometimes. You know what I mean? Like I think on some level, everyone needs to chill out a little bit. 
But I do think there are some hardcore truths. I think there's enough overwhelming data that has been published that shows that sugar is actually quite harmful yes. for one's health. I yeah. think th there are some sort of undeniable truths that I, I don't think, think anyone that's serious would dispute that that refined carbohydrates is bad for you. Like refined sugar is bad for which you. Is which is relieving, yeah. And I think there's really good data that low-carb ketogenic diets are good for glucose control, insulin re resistance control. So I think some of that, I think, is becoming more and more mainstream. And I hope that that gets disseminated, but also that we don't overshoot and become overly dogmatic on the other side. Right? Absolutely. I think that's like the danger where I could see on the on the on the vegan or the low fat people where it's like, you guys are becoming overly religious on only eating 80% fat every single day. Right. <laughs> so it's just like, okay, let's find some sensibility around personalizing diets for certain everyone's own individual goals and their own makeup. Yeah, exactly. I think we can agree on that. I, I'm actually curious in terms of just, again, to your clinical experience, has the questions or the pitfalls changed over the last few years? Are people coming in just smarter around how to go on a ketogenic diet? That's a really good question. Like when people, when you said like people are eat, doing it wrong, are they doing it wrong in a less wrong way or are they doing it in a kind of a funky way? Like, so the number one issue that people face is that they think they're eating keto, but they're actually not. And when I say they're doing it wrong is that they're actually eating more carbs than they realize. So there's a lot of like hidden carbs and things that people don't realize. I think the, the kind of most common stuff like sauces have a lot of sugar in them yeah. and people have no clue about this. Yeah. Like barbecue sauce should be renamed sugar sauce because it's super high in carbs. A lot of salad Salad dressings, like sometimes people think balsamic vinaigrette doesn't have sugar in mm. it, but I have been in situations where standing at Trader Joe's looking at two balsamic vinaigrette bottles, one has no sugar in it, the other one has sugar in it. Right. So that is a lot of hidden carbs. So they're actually eating more than they realize, and then they're not losing weight or in ketosis or whatever. Again, sometimes people, when they say they're sort of doing it wrong, they may not be eating enough fat. And so they're feeling really tired or they're not taking enough salt and water. Right. And so they feel like crap and they think, oh, well, it's because I need carbs to live, but it's right. actually no, a salt issue. So right. there's so many nuances, right? Yeah. I think it's really important to work with someone that knows enough about it to give them guidance right. because you could run the risk of kind of screwing things yeah. up. Yeah. Cool. And then you're going to go around and give keto a bad name. And I'm like, <laughs> if you're going to talk shit on keto, at least do it right. right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, fair enough. I think there is a lot of nuance there. And I would say that part of it is that people have tried to figure out this current like standard Western diet over decades, right? People have like tuned Cheerios and carby stuff. So you can make the same argument that it takes some time to, for people to figure out what is sustainable and what is easy to eat. That's so true. On a ketogenic diet. That's so true. So I'm actually curious. So sexual health. Yeah. Is this something that you're always interested in? Was it an offshoot from being interested in metabolism? So I think on some level, like I grew up in a very conservative Indian family. Like we didn't talk about sex at all. Yeah. It was something that was just never addressed. And then when I went to medical school, <laughs> one of the kind of first early sort of sexual health related memories I had was learning about birth control. And before I went to med school, I thought, oh, like, I know what birth control is. You just get on the pill. Right. And then when I went to med school, I was like, no, 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 no. There's a bunch of birth control options. There's a lot of education out there that I had no clue about. And that sort of started this whole process of like, well, what else can you learn? And long story short, I basically realized that understanding your own kind of sexual health is a form of empowerment. 
And it's like you hit the nail on the head. Like it is a type of health. And if there's sexual dysfunction, it is an offshoot of health problems. Mm -hmm. You know, I think currently in the medical kind of realm, for example, if a man comes into the doctor's office complaining of erectile dysfunction, the current paradigm is to prescribe some sort of erectile dysfunction medication. This is not correct. This is not the standard of care. It should not be the standard of care. If anyone suffers from erectile dysfunction and they go see their doctor, they need to be screened for high cholesterol, for mm. diabetes, for thyroid dysfunction. They need to be tested for medical causes of this before even having a conversation about prescription medications. And I don't think a lot of males out there realize this, that if they're having ED problems, they need to go get some blood tests to make sure they don't have diabetes. Right. It's not just like, give me some Viagra and yeah. I patched a problem. You're saying, hey, this is a fundamental issue with your body. Exactly. And it could be a serious medical issue. Many men who suffer from erectile dysfunction actually have undiagnosed diabetes. Huh. And I don't think that is common information. How is that related? So let's let's walk through that connection. So diabetes is a vascular neural sensory disorder, right? Okay. When diabetes is in full flare, it affects the vasculature. In an erect penis, basically erection happens when the penis engorges with blood through vascular tissue. Right. If the vascular tissue isn't properly functioning because of the diabetes, there will be erection problems. Right. It's like not the, a very so like complex So high issue. blood sugar is inflammatory and that harms the vasculature, the blood vessels. It causes direct damage to okay. both and big and small vessels. So over time, obviously your entire blood vessel system is affected, but obviously your penis has a lot of blood vessels. Yeah, your or, penis has a ton of penis. blood vessels. Yes. Yes. Sometimes more than you actually should <laughs> be having. No, um, but if you think about diabetes, diabetes is a disease that affects every blood vessel in the body. This mm -hmm. is why diabetes is associated with dementia, right? Vascular dementia, heart attacks, vessels in your heart, erectile dysfunction, vessels in your penis. Like right. it affects everything. So if there's anything that people listening get out of this talk today, I just want them to know Don't that- Don't just pop some Viagra. Do check, not take Viagra. Yeah. Check your H1B or- Yeah, go get your yeah. fasting glucose check. Yeah. Check your insulin levels. Like make sure your cholesterol's in check. Don't just pop the pills. Have you corrected people's ED in your practice with diet? Um, with, you know, dietary interventions for diabetes? So in what I've seen so far, if someone is getting erectile dysfunction and their hemoglobin A1C is kind of in the pre-diabetes range, so it's pretty early, yeah. you can improve things. However, the thing is important to note, it's individual. So just because your hemoglobin A1C isn't that high doesn't mean there's a lot of vascular damage that's already happened. This is why it's important to get this stuff checked out way sooner than when things start to develop. I see. So you're saying that vascular damage is essentially hard to repair once it's done. Once there is vascular damage, you want to prevent the progression. Right. You really want to prevent, you want to slow it as much as possible. Okay. And it's not just for men too. Yeah, is so, there a female analogy? So yeah, here? like, so there's a disorder called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is basically a female version of sexual dysfunction where you have trouble with arousal. And there's many causes for that. 
There can be psychological causes, but there can also be medical causes for that. Again, Mm -hmm. diabetes is a disease that can cause neuropathy. And essentially, if you have decreased nervous sensation in the clitoral area, it can affect your sexual arousal. Right, because you just don't feel anything. You're just like, eh. Exactly. So, you know, obviously in terms of female sexual dysfunction, there's a lot of different things. Like you can have dyspareunia, which is pain during sex, or vulvodynia, which is vulvar pain. And there's lots of things that can cause that, like infections or urinary tract infections or bacterial infections, lots of different things. But at the same time, you don't want to forget about anything that can infect nervous innervation in that area. And again, this has to do with insulin resistance. So it's all connected, my friends. Yeah. I mean, the more and more literature you dive into this space, it seems like insulin resistance is a core root cause for so many end functional problems. I mean, it's the elephant in the room. Yeah. It's like, it's really the giant elephant in the room. Like we're sitting here looking at cholesterol and whether we should prescribe statins and all this stuff, but we're missing the big point that insulin resistance is the elephant in the room. Yeah. It just seems that like the current culture within medical practice is to wrap the symptoms, right? Statins is like a treating the symptom of high LDL, right? So you just kind of jam it down with statins. Or, or you Viag- mean high LDL, yeah. 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 And, then, and then like Viagra, just like, all right, there's like some blood flow issues where you're just like loosen your blood vessels, essentially was what Viagra does. Yeah. And, and you're uh, not treating the root cause, which you're suggesting is from insulin resistance. I think insulin resistance is definitely something you have to make sure you don't have. There's yeah. other things that can cause erectile dysfunction, but I right. think you also need to make sure that you don't have that. You know, what's interesting, I do think this system, the fact that we're pushing all these pills and all that stuff has to do with the current medical system. The fact that we have built now a medical system where doctors are pressured to see people every 15, 20 minutes. You can't talk to someone about diet, nutrition in 15, 20 minutes well it's a lot faster to just prescribe a medication. This is a huge systemic problem. Think about how much you've read about the keto diet on your own time. How many hours you've put in to then be able to like be like, okay, now I understand what this is and I'm going to do it, right? right? To have a physician now explain all of that to you in a 20-minute block because insurance companies say that that's what you need to do, it doesn't it's make impossible. any sense. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, this is a conversation that I don't think we've had, but something that has been something in my mind just the infrastructure, the structure of American healthcare is just messed up. We have I, I, serious problems. And it's also just kind of intellectually weird why you have insurance or the payer kind of sitting in between the doctor and the patient. And honestly, I think it's unethical to create a system that profits off of people's illness. Because that's essentially what these insurance companies are doing. They have a bottom line and they're profiting off of the idea that people are sick and that's the business, right? So if you're running a business like that, it's in your best incentive to run a business where people stay sick, right? Because if they're not sick anymore, what are you going to do? Well, I think part of it is that the insurance companies are forced to pay out a percentage of their premiums, right? Because if, I mean, if it's, a, if it's like a standard capitalist system, then you would want to maximize the difference as much as possible, right? I collect premiums and I hope that my people don't get sick so I don't have to pay out, you know, bills for doctors and, and medicine. Mm-hmm. So then you can actually capture that difference. But for the current system, the government actually regulates that a certain percentage of the premiums need to actually be paid out. So there's less of an incentive now for the insurance companies to really negotiate or really push down costs because they have to spend 
90 plus percent of the premiums on care. Right. So I think it's like this weird com- mishmash of capitalism and socialism in- into this like weird gargoyle of the system. And like maybe you go completely like Medicare for all or you go completely capitalist. It might just be a more simpler, like purer system. And But I think that's like the current debate that's happening with people on the left and the right. I don't know if anyone has the right answer. Well, I mean, I, that's something that people are just arguing about in, in, in Congress all the time. I mean, I'm an advocate for like a single payer. There should just be one system and that's it. There shouldn't be all these other systems. That's what I think. It should be about the physician and the patient. That should be the relationship. There should be no people getting in the middle, telling doctors and patients how they need to be treated. But this is a huge debate. I mean, we could do a five-hour podcast on this, I feel. Yeah, Um, and I think it's not something that, like, you know, I've read enough about to really have, I think, an informed discussion. But I think there's some things attractive with a single-payer system. But I also just have a natural affinity to to marketplaces. If you just let people compete, Mm -hmm. that's worked for every single system in terms of building businesses, building services, and why would medicine or education be different? So I I have some affinity to that argument as well. Just let people compete to provide better services. And my skepticism for single-payer systems is like, when has government done like something like really, really good and efficiently? So like, I think it doesn't mean it's like a nail in a coffin for me, Mm -hmm. but it's something that I need to understand more to really make sure that, hey, if we have a government-mandated system, like if it's run as well as the DMV, like uh, that might be just even worse. Mm -hmm. But if it is just well as, you know, well run as an elite unit in the military or something, maybe that could be really streamlined. Yeah, you know, that's an experiment to be run, right? Right. Well, the current experiment that's going on right now is not going well. I mean, let's be real. Like, we're getting sicker. The current guidelines aren't being helpful. I think the one saving grace would be somehow convincing life insurance companies to get in on this game in the sense that if you convince life insurance companies that, hey, if you spend more time on preventing these illnesses from occurring— you're going to get a healthier population living longer that'll pay into your life insurance system. So right. you'll end up making more money. So I think the health insurance or the life insurance lobby is probably the only entity left now that could potentially change the current mm. landscape. Interesting. Because pharmaceutical companies have no incentive in getting people well and off their medications, right. right? That's correct. So that's a conflict of interest. Right. And then there's like no negotiating power with insurance companies because insurance because payers aren't jamming down costs, right? Yeah. So my money's on the life insurance lobby. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is something I've been thinking about recently, actually. Like, you know, can we incentivize things like fitness goals or hemoglobin A1C goals as a way to reduce premiums? Like, I think that there's that argument that maybe that's making the healthier, giving them even more of an advantage towards people that are sick. And there's often social economic lines that overlay on top of these things. So there's a couple of things about that. Like, first of all, right now, Medicare does look at things like hemoglobin A1C in terms of outcomes. The other thing that I think, but, though, is that like, life insurance... But com- like, it's a healthcare mandate, right? Like yeah, it's everyone, a healthcare mandate. So everyone yeah. is flattened out now. Right. Like, even if I'm obese, have diabetes, I pay the same premium as like the healthy version of me. Right. And my biggest issue with that is, first of all, I don't even think hemoglobin A1C is a really good screening test because you can get complications of diabetes at 
hemoglobin A1C numbers that are less than okay, seven, sure. right? So I also have a problem with that. Okay. But the other thing is that, I, at least right now, life insurance companies, they will make their kind uh, so of- So life insurance will discriminate. Exactly. Discriminate. Yeah, life insurance but is But health only- insurance can't, no. can't do that anymore. Yeah. No, correct. Right. Right. Um, so- as for The last time I checked, no, but- I don't I know. Think, with yeah. our current presidency, I don't Obama, know what's changing. Obamacare is intact. So, um, <laughs> Every day is a different story. Yeah. Just- but I, I would think that, again, if you allow people to compete and add different incentives to people, could one, maybe this is a naive approach, but okay, if I am incentivized to now have to prove that I exercise 10 hours a week, uh-huh. or I'm incentivized not to eat so much soda and right. hamburgers every single day, could this marketplace incentive around reducing premiums or a tax reduction right. be a, a positive force here? Because people are incentivized by money. I don't know. Are you? You should run for office or do something. You should get involved. Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully, you know, having conversations and educating educating people is you know something that we can do that's more high high leverage. But I mean, it, it, these are topics that end up being something of interest, right? If you think yeah. about these problems. On a, at an individual level or at a community level with the podcast, then it's only natural to extend it out. Okay, like we're thinking about this stuff. And oftentimes I think that we think about it at a deeper level than politicians, then yeah, we should have some sort of strong opinions here. Absolutely. It affects all of us, right? Yeah. It's impacting yeah, all of us. We're all paying us. taxes. We're all paying taxes. And I don't want to see sicker Americans. Yeah. When we're not sick, we don't go into work, we're depressed. Right. It affects everybody. Right. I want our world to thrive. And I think it starts with the dinner table. Like, I think it honestly <laughs> starts with what we eat. I think food is the foundation for health. I think nutritional deficiencies lead to a lot of medical illnesses. I, and I think maybe this is uh, under credit to folks like yourself, but I, I think it's also the role of doctors who also serve as guides hmm. or coaches in some way. Because I think one thing, another thing that I've been puzzling about is that there seem to be more of a standard of performance in culture in a previous generation. And what I mean by that is that there was like certain fitness goals that you had to like pass in like physical education. And I feel like a lot of those goals are drawn back or reduced because it's not politically correct or you don't want to like, you know, hurt the feelings of obese kids. Mm -hmm. And I think you don't discriminate or you you don't overly criticize people for being out of shape. But I think that there is some value in having coaches, doctors, professionals saying, hey, you should work towards these kind of health goals. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like a fitness goal, but maybe it's like a biomarker goal. Yeah, yeah. And I think the problem with kind of this directionless freedom that we have in America is that there's nothing to work for. So it's like, okay, we're all living our, these happy lives, but like, what am I working towards? Like, totally. what's my goal? Like, usually people come to you like, okay, I'm sick. My goal is to get back to normal. But I don't think that's good enough. I think we always have to be fighting against dying yeah so if you know if i came to you and you're like hey like these are pretty good i would consider working towards improving your aerobic capacity or reducing your your facet insulin levels Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and you being able to tell me that when i check in with you every six months or a year and we do that across the population i think that would change a dynamic of our country's health it would change the world if we approach things like that Hippocrates said, let thy food be thy medicine. You know, we physicians should understand nutrition and the principles of nutrition and what it means to actually be well. And exactly like you're saying, setting those goals. A lot of times people 
come to the doctor because they think they want to lose weight or they should lose weight. Usually weight is like the big thing. Doc, I need to lose weight. And what's interesting though, is that at least in my practice, I never tell someone you need to lose X number of pounds. I actually can't remember the last time I've said to Hmm. someone, you need to lose X pounds, five pounds, whatever. I look at the biomarkers, right? And I say, okay, let's say you have diabetes or you have prediabetes, right? I want you to change your diet so that this can go into remission. You might lose weight as a side effect of that. That's great. But I'm not telling you to lose weight. I'm telling you to change your diet to become healthier, right? So that later on, when that's you actually live, more actionable too. It's more right? actionable. It's like oh, I gotta lose weight. I don't know what to do. But you were telling me, okay, don't eat donuts, blah, blah, blah. yeah, or whatever. Yeah, right? that's actually I can do that. Right, and I actually don't care about how much someone weighs. Right. I care about their quality of life. I care about what's going on inside their blood work and like their heart and their organs. Like I care about their organs. I don't care about how much they weigh. Yeah. So if there's any doctors listening out there, I don't believe in telling your patients, hey, lose 10 pounds, lose five pounds. Tell people to adapt your lifestyle to lose the disease states. Yeah, And like the nice side effect oftentimes is that weight loss. Weight loss is a side effect, yeah. But it should never be the primary goal. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a more sensible approach because I think when people just get, hey, lose weight. And I think there's enough fat shaming and just, social pressures around that where it's just kind of a hard topic to broach but if you're focused on the biomarkers then it has nothing to do with how much someone weighs i I think the end outcome ends up being they lose weight which is like kind of what you want like just objectively like that's probably a healthier body mass index and all that so yeah but i think it's a more amenable way to convince someone of what to do and it's more actionable because you're not just telling them something that like seems impossible for them absolutely if they knew how to do it they would have done it like, I don't That's think people want to be true. fat, right? Yeah. But if you're just telling them like actual step-by-step things they can do that change in their lives, that's tractable. I think you end up with happier patients. I can tell you that because I am board certified by the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And after I did that board certification and learned about nutrition and then started implementing certain principles into my practice, I can tell you I got a lot more hugs, <laughs> you know, because it's just so satisfying when you're helping people getting healthier right you're not keeping them sick yeah you're getting them better yeah and yeah it's nice to get hugs throughout the day <laughs> i mean i imagine that that's probably why at least that's my hope is that that's why people get into medicine well right? i think that I, I was hope. the original reason yeah. but i think things have changed like the system is so broken now the insurance companies have basically devastated the physician-patient relationship. So you guys are just more technicians. I think things have really changed. I still really love helping people. Don't get me wrong. But the worst part about the current system is the bureaucracy and the insurance companies telling you whatever. You can't order this or this isn't covered. It's painful. It's painful to hear patients complain about how much they got nickeled and dimed because their physician wanted to order some blood tests on them that they felt were pertinent. It's not right, you know? I don't know. (laughs) I want to go back to the old days where like people would give their doctors a cow and a goat and that was their payment. And then the doctor would like, I don't know, take out their appendix or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no. I've, I've read about how medicine was practiced before it was like the town doctor. Yeah. It was like 
you know, just like you have like a, a relationship with like your football coach. Right. Like you have that same sort of familiar neighborhood in relationship with your doctor. Yeah, no, and, I think back in the day. how do we get to, like, a little bit closer to that state? No, doctors used to be respected members of society. You know what I mean? Like yeah. now I'm basically on food stamps here in San Francisco, you know? So yeah, no, it's, you used to be an integral member of the society and you would help people. Like if a town got ill, the doctor was the one that would help. Yeah, you're and the authority figure. Things have totally changed now. You're just, uh, many are shift workers. You're just passing people off. You know, patients are viewed as entities now. They're viewed mm. the same as like companies looking at widgets. The whole process has dehumanized. And I think that should change a lot of patients yeah, it's already. Good, it's not it, good. Because I think it's also pushing people towards like gurus that aren't scientific, which is also a huge problem. That's right? exactly what I was going like, to say. Like if it's personality driven now, then it's like, okay, I'd much rather talk to someone that's actually qualified, actually studied this, you know, proper medical school, proper certifications than some well, guru you know, <laughs> just like talking about diet and I don't know, read some internet blog posts. Well, you know, I see a lot of people basically who look at the Western system yeah. and they feel like it's failed them. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, I don't blame them for thinking that. Yeah. Right. They feel like they've been gypped by the Western standards. And so they seek alternative solutions. They're leaving the current system to go talk to guru diet person. Yeah. I think it's right for people to search for things that work. Right. But again, I think it's, again, similar to, you know, the keto, the, the carbonati and <laughs> vegan battle. You don't want to pull a Steve Jobs for eating all fruit diets to try to cure cancer. He was a fruititarian? Yeah. Oh, Something wow. like that. I didn't I, know that. Yeah. Oh, no. That's so interesting. Speaking of Something radical like diets, when I was reading about the kind of sexual health history, one of the things that I came upon was how historically many major religions implement fasting and not eating meat products because they felt like it would affect libido. So, especially like in Catholicism, like for Lent, they sort of said- To in reduce the, libido. To reduce libido. Yeah, the point was to not have this high libido. Yeah. There were also stories of Buddhist monks becoming vegetarian because, again, it would reduce libido. That makes sense. And, you know, if you think about sense. it, like, yeah, cholesterol is actually a precursor of testosterone, yep. right? So, you know, their thinking was very interesting, and historically, it really goes back, you it know? Makes sense from an evolutionary biology perspective. <laughs> if you're starving, your body's not trying to procreate. So totally. it's just conserving longevity pathways rather than procreation pathways, which totally. makes sense. It's just funny that, yeah, even if you go back to like Catholicism and in Islam as well during right. like fasting periods of Ramadan, um, it's just an interesting thing. Yeah, no, yeah, bringing back to sexual health, I'm actually curious in terms of it sounds like uh, you obviously like to coach and work with your patients more than traditional current standard of care. Have you had success stories or case studies or anecdotes around how you're able to coach people through some of their sexual dysfunction issues? In terms of success stories, sexual health is very kind of complex. Broad, yeah. yeah, it's very broad. Yeah. And when when it comes to sexual health, I see a lot of women that have dyspareunia, which is pain during sex. Mm. And many of them are postmenopausal, after menopause. Mm. So after menopause, there's a lot of hormonal changes that occur. And many of them come to me basically because they they want to have more meaningful sexual lives and they feel like it's almost like after menopause, sex is over. And I think that should be a point like 
You can absolutely have a meaningful sexual life postmenopausally. It's not a death knell like, oh, just you might as well call it quits and like head thee to the nunnery or anything like that, right? (laughs) So a lot of times I do counseling about how to help their dyspareunia. You know, in terms of diet changes. I mean, like what does counseling look like? I mean, is it just. Number one, identify what exactly the problem is. So like if they say, hey, I'm having pain during sex, the first thing you do is you do an examination and you, you check the anatomy to make sure that there's not excessive dryness or there's not prolapse of some sort of area. And then based off of that, you can make an assessment. A lot of times it might be something as simple as like, hey, they just need lubrication every day, right? Right. Or it could be something more serious that then requires maybe like treatment with either antibiotics or referral to a specialist. Those are kind of the more, honestly, the more bread and butter, the more common cases. I'm trying to think with men. A lot of times when I see men, they tend to be older. And it's funny because a lot of times they come in wanting Viagra prescriptions. And then I sort of have to be like, well, hold the phone, mister. Like, we're going to have to do some other tests first before you get this right. because we need to screen you for all this stuff. And usually they're pretty happy about that because they don't know. They have no clue. And then, yeah, depending on that, then you can make- It stands to reason, right? Like, I don't think- at least just speaking just personally, like I don't want to be reliant on a blue pill to yeah. have an erection, right? It's like if you can solve like the root cause, like great. Like totally. I'm not dependent on drugs to have sex. Right. And not only that, those medications are expensive. I don't think insurance covers them. They're huh. fairly expensive. Okay. You know, the last time I checked, I thought they were quite a few bucks per pill. So it's a lot cheaper to not take them <laughs> if you can. Interesting. I guess like kind of on the sociological line been these online forums around incels or involuntary celibates and i think this is more less of a physiological side but how people are navigating sexual health so i think this Mm -hmm. is more attuned to more of i think the lack of discussion around sex in culture yeah I, i would say that like in some ways that people are having more and more open discussions but i do sense that there is like a puritan strain within america where people don't really want to talk about it Oh, yeah. We're super prudish. We're total prudes about sex. I mean, there's certain enclaves where it's much more discussed. But I think mainstream sex, like, forget the doctor's office, even outside in public, like, a lot of, let's say, college kids, for example, they don't know much about sex. And I think that's really dangerous. Mm. I think especially young kind of populations, adolescents, they should absolutely know the basics of sex. Like even things like what is consent? You know, what are you comfortable with? I mean, what was your education in high school? Like I remember that in like 10th grade, you had to take a health class and (laughs) which talked about like, this is how you put on a condom and like, I, I don't really remember. I mean, it was kind of like, it's like one of those joke classes, right? That people oh, like, yeah. Uh, like. Okay, I remember I was in high school. They basically showed me the most awful photos of STDs. It was <laughs> literally traumatizing. Like, I've been a physician, and I have never in my career seen cases that were the photos of what they showed us. I mean, they showed us basically, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it, just like the worst STDs ever. Like basically it looked like they had cauliflowers coming like out of their channels. Like it okay. was like end stage, like stuff you never see. And they yeah. were basically like, if you have sex, this is what's gonna happen to you. And so of course I like swore celibacy after <laughs> that, just because I was scared. Yeah. And it wasn't until much later that then I was introduced to the 
idea of like, oh, you can have meaningful sexual encounters that are safe and are very pleasurable and are very empowering. And there was no talk about teaching pleasure in high school. It mm. was all just very fear-based. Like scare the crap out of you it if you don't have sex. It just scared the crap out of people. Yeah. And, you know, sexual desires are normal human experience, right? Especially yep. if you're growing up, right? Kids are going to want to have sex. Like, you need to arm them properly. Don't scare them. I don't think scaring people works. I think you have to empower people. Right. Like, teaching both guys and yeah, girls. So yeah, what, what is something that's actionable? Like, what would you recommend or if you could design the system? You know, so, well, what, what would it look like? You know, what age? You know, let's just let's talk, let's explore this. Well, a little bit. first, I would lay out the idea that intimacy is not just about sexual intercourse. That you can actually have intimate experiences without having sex, because intimacy starts with I think with touch, like just from something as simple as holding hands and feeling comfortable with that to maybe kissing and making out to then having like full blown sexual intercourse. Right. I think it's a spectrum. And I think there's a lot of people out there right now that think intimacy is just purely based off of sexual intercourse. So that would be the first thing that you can actually obtain pleasure by mm. just very simple things like that. that so even just helping people structure the thinking a little bit. And I think that's actually helpful to in this discussion, right? I, I think that's true. You don't really think about it structurally. You're just kind of like sex stuff in a bucket. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, maybe it is worth just like, okay, there's the different escalation steps and how do you think about them or how you treat them differently. There, at least it's like worth like a good thought experiment just to like structure this thinking a little bit. And, you know, especially in this day and age where we live with so much access to sexual information and stuff in the internet, like mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misinformation, like in pornography, for example. I think many young people and older, many people in general rely on pornography as their sole example of what sexual experiences should be like. And I think that's very misleading and potentially dangerous. Yeah. You know, there are kind of situations now where- yeah, It's hard to project. Like if you just see like hardcore porn, it's like, that's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine like what, you know, do people actually, I don't know, like do people actually think that like, okay, you gotta like, Yes, they do. Okay. I think especially the the younger kids that are growing up, their their first sexual sort of experiences are through pornography. Okay. And so if you grow up watching porn and watching porn stars have sex, the first time you're with a real normal non-porn star person, you're mimicking that. You're actually going to have a serious disconnect of what even arousal should be like. <laughs> Right. And yeah. this is a real thing where yeah. this is an extreme case, but people who suffer from porn addiction then actually have trouble with true intimacy with real human beings. So this is a big disconnect. So to kind of teaching basic intimacy face to face on a human level that isn't skewed by the entertainment industry or by the porn industry, I think is really important to teaching intimacy and what it means to have pleasure. Mm -hmm. From a physical standpoint, right? There's a lot of females out there that probably watch pornography and think that, oh, that's what my body's supposed to look like. And the reality is normal human beings don't have porn bodies. There's a whole spectrum of the way people should look. 
And that also is part of the misinformation. So that is also plays a role in self-love, right? Like if you see certain images your whole life and you think a sexually charged person is supposed to look like this, but when you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't see that, that, it would be a natural progression to think, oh, I'm not sexy, therefore I'm not loved. And then that can lead to a whole other set of dysfunctional issues. So the next step in terms of understanding what intimacy is, I think would also be understanding your own body and learning to love that in and of itself. And that also involves like knowing how to pleasure yourself. Because I think a person that doesn't know how to pleasure themselves can't expect any other person to pleasure them. Mm -hmm. It starts with you. So that would be like the fundamental tenets of like what I would create to like create, I don't know, a much more sexually healthy world. I think those are all really good points. It's almost the reverse of what's being currently taught. Oh, totally. Or like people, they're not telling you to masturbate, essentially. Exactly. Right? They're like, don't, uh, I don't even know if they talk about it. Well, there's this thing, no that's really popular. Yes. What's, what does that mean? Uh, when you don't masturbate for like. So this is, again, this oh, is like God. similar to sounds awful. Kind of the community that these online men who talk about no fap or incels. So incels are involuntary celibates, these are disenfranchised men who don't have relationships with women and they're involuntarily celibate. And they're like kind of the more extreme sort of associated with the alt-right like people. And then you have people in the NoFap community. And I remember engaging with some folks in that community around, and, and the whole notion there is that porn is addictive and these men get sexual dysfunction from porn where they like can't have erections in like a normal intimate situation. Mm-hmm. And then they just swear off masturbation and swear off porn so the, for like days at a time. So let me clarify though. So, but swearing off masturbation is different than swearing off porn. Or is it that they don't masturbate while watching porn or they stop masturbating, hmm. period? So like, because if they're like- I in- think there's probably, you know, different classes. Okay. But, but I, I think that they often are intertwined where they're just like, you know, quit porn and they quit masturbating and they- and, and if you go to like Reddit R NoFap, you can see people <laughs> with like day 400. Oh it's in their thing, like their little uh, flare. They're like right next to their screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, They're I like signature. I haven't masturbated or watched porn in like 200 days. Wow. See, like I could I could understand the no watching porn thing because you can not watch porn and still have intimate encounters and be sexually active, whatever. But to not masturbate, I mean, to me, that's like, why would you give up something that's like so like, it's cheap, it's free, (laughs) it's free. It it relieves stress. It it takes like no time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like to me, that's like, what a a loss of a good resource. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I think, I remember looking at this, like some of the reasons why they say this is that or why one would consider this is that they often say that they have more pent-up aggression towards like actual interactions with women or, or people. So, oh, so like they're of, more present with actual other people or Yeah, they they feel like they are they were like they keep their sexual energy sort of pent up so they can actually have, I would say, more alpha, more aggressive more interactions. Mana. More mana. Kind, yeah, that kind of thinking. So they're still sexually active, right? So it's not that they're not sexually active, right? So then that's a little bit of a misnomer, yeah, right? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think that's a very different class of people <laughs> than like the insult people, which oftentimes are like spawning like kind of like crazy like school shooter types. Wow. Um, Jeez. Yeah, it makes you wonder how those school shooters, like if someone had taught them intimacy, 
at a younger age and taught them to be more connected with their body, like, would the outcome have been different? I don't know. I I'm think just, so. I'm just I mean, saying, I mean, like, self-love, I think, is really powerful for being, like, not a school shooter. Yeah. No, I mean, I think all those things that you mentioned, I think, are just valuable for life. Like, yeah. like, like this kind of, like, life coaching. Totally. And uh, that's something that I've been, another thing that I've been puzzling about. Like, I think in the classic public school education system, there's no longer that mentor, mentee, sort of that guidance, apprenticeship type model that helps train young women and young men to be fully self-actualized adults. And I, I think some of the things you talked about around what does it mean to be intimate with someone? What does it mean to love your own body? What does it mean to know how to pleasure yourself? I mean, I, I think there's a huge health component to it. But it's really just like, how do you live life in a, in a well thought out way? Absolutely. So I think it's even a broader question. Like, how are we educating people? I do think if people were more sexually connected, I do think that also has the ability to change the world. Mm. I do think it's that powerful in the sense that connections with one's body then plays a role with connections with your external environment. If you feel a disconnect things will change then to create harmony with that disconnect. Right. And I, I think it has rippling effects. Right. I guess, you know, I, I know from a, like a devil's advocate perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not saying, hey, just like have super casual sex or just sleep with everyone you want. Like I want to just like benchmark and, and, and where are they, you know, what's the territory you're talking about here? Yeah, so yeah. I'm talking about advocating for intimacy and pleasure. Yeah. And by no means, I'm not saying like, oh, just start having meaningless sex right. at I, all. I, think, I think people on the right would say, hey, like maybe like, okay, now you're just promoting just free love. So what is free love, right? But it's yeah. about having sex with intention. It's about having sexual encounters that are meaningful because you've ascribed some sort of value to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's not to say like you can sleep with a lot of people if that's what's meaningful to you. Right. Like it's not assigning a value or shame to anything. Like mm -hmm. if you want to be monogamous or you want to be polyamorous, you you can like whatever works for you works. There's no judgment. But it's it's the fact that you are choosing to do that. Right. Yeah. Nobody's telling you that that's what you're supposed to be doing. You have looked inside yourself and you found that that is what you want. And that's why you're doing it. That is what I'm advocating for. Yeah. yeah. And there's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I can agree with that 100%. So the, you are self empowered to make your own choices around your sexual behavior. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is something that right now, a lot of people don't realize that they have that choice. Right. Right. A society tells us that we're supposed to be a certain way sexually. And I'm trying to say that even outside of the like medical doctor's office, there's so much that you can learn about your sexuality and you should learn it and you should understand what you like and what you don't like. And in the meantime, also get tested for diabetes and all the other stuff. <laughs> the thing is like a lot of people are embarrassed to talk to their doctors about this sort of stuff. And like one thing I would just want to say is that like doctors have seen it all. Like I've probably looked at more penises and vaginas like in my life now like that. I, I don't even know how many like it's just the human body. You know what I mean? There's nothing thing glorified about it it's just a body and like um, when you're in, in the in your practice it's just kind of 
like you just stay on the job this is looking at like a car engine yeah it's like not like a up. big deal so i think like people need to get over that embarrassment that like somehow they're inconveniencing their doctor by bringing this stuff up yeah. that's what they're there for you know what i mean like don't be embarrassed about that but I, I feel like you're like a rare doctor or like a, a uncommon doctor where you're <laughs> more approachable in that way where you're just like telegraphing that out well i, I think Especially growing up, I was probably more intimidated by doctors because, like, I they just seem very busy. Like, they're kind of like jump in, look at your little paper, and then rushing out. And you're like, oh, I I don't mean feel comfortable with this human being. Cause I know I've been trying this thing actually, and I should ask you what you think. I've I've actually been trying where I don't wear a white coat in the visit because I think it makes people feel kind of more on edge when right. someone's wearing the white coat. And I don't know, like, let me just ask you as a curiosity, like yeah. if you went to go mm. see your doctor and they were not wearing- casual. Yeah, they were not, not casual. Like they still had the stethoscope Well, you look professional, stuff, right? But yeah, but you weren't like wearing the white coat. Like, do you think that would make you feel less comfortable or more comfortable? I think it, I, I would add some like subtlety there. I think if I knew that you were- Credible, smart, legitimate. Like I knew you were a proper doctor. Uh huh. And then you kind of opened up and were in a more of a human conversation. I think I would respond better. Than to not have it. Yeah, to not have it. Yeah. But but that's assuming. That I I think part of it is it's like a sign of authority. I like know. you've earned the white coat. I know. If I know that from you, you don't need to have that shield anymore. Yeah. You should be able to open up to me as a human, pure human being. Yeah. So I think For it sure. depends on the context. So if people. So I think it's a good, easy, cheap way to establish authority. Yeah. But if you already have that in your practice or you have that confidence, just projected authority through your knowledge, then I think that having that dichotomy of having like authority through your content and knowledge, but projecting a very open, warm right. physical experience, I think is an interesting combo. Like I would personally respond well to Better, that. Better, yeah. Yeah, because so. then it's like, hey, we can have a real conversation about like my issues and exactly. my goals, rather than like this person's kind of shielded up, right? And it's like focuses more on the the interaction and the healing, and less about like the power dichotomy, right? Correct. The only downside to not wearing a white coat is that the white coat has pockets, and like it's really helpful to carry stuff in the pockets. Yeah. So that's the only downside. But I think it's yeah, a minor it's thing. an interesting trade off. I would say that like if I saw my doctor and like they were comfortable. I think projecting a little bit of their human side and yeah. like the, the kind of the mentor coach side of things. Right. I think that would be of benefit. For I sure. feel like I just connect with you better. Up to a certain point, right? Like obviously you don't want your doctor in like a tank top and shorts and sandals. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like professional, right? Like yeah, they're treating sure. this seriously. I'm treating this seriously, but I'm not going to Best Buy to buy like a right. computer and like you're in your little Best Buy uniform. Best Buy. I would love to try that one day. No, not really. I've do you feel like patients in a Best Buy outfit? <laughs> do you feel like your com comedian life informs and helps your medical practice? Um, I mean, I imagine that like the bedside care, the ability to open people up, and and like I, I think I would imagine the ability to read people in, in terms of, like reading a crowd I is an asset. So, like, full disclosure, like, I'm pretty serious in the office. Okay. I'm pretty professional. Okay. Like, I'm not, like, cracking yeah, jokes yeah, or yeah, anything yeah. like that. Yeah. I think, though, if there's anything comedy has taught me is kind of keeping it real. So, like, the situations in which I think I've been grateful to know stand-up is, like, if, let's say, I was talking to a patient and I started to get the vibe that the patient, like, wasn't on board 
with whatever I was saying for whatever reason. I think because of comedy now, I can kind of call it for what it is and just sort of call them out and be like, you don't sound convinced. Like, right. you don't look happy about this. Or just just say it for what it is, right. which um, has is something I learned, like, performing on stage and interacting with audience members and, like, playing off of their energy and calling them out for what it is. Obviously, on stage, it's much more exaggerated, but then a milder version of that is helpful in person. Right. And I like that because it keeps it real. Like, you're just being honest with them. Right. And that's what comedy is, too. The best comedy is honest comedy where you're just being vulnerable the audience can tell when you're not being honest. Right. They can sense that. And so the funnier you are, the more honest and vulnerable you are. You're like right. going to those places where other people are afraid to go. Yep. And if there's anything that that has trickled into the office is trying to keep it real. Because it's already super stressful to go see your doctor. Like, you know, driving out and then parking and then waiting and, and all that shit. Yeah. And then the, the, you know, the blood pressure machine and all that. And then meeting them and whatever it is. Like, yeah. there's already so much hype. Like, you want to minimize that and just remember like, hey, this is a person they're, they're helping you. It's just human to human, yeah. which is hard to remember sometimes. Yeah. No, I think that's a good way to put it. I just remember our, some of our audience questions here and also just relates more on, again, to the sexual health topics. Mm -hmm. One of our audience members asks, is there an equivalent of menopause for men? We talked about female menopause. Yeah. And perhaps this is a certain segment of our audience, but also just, you know, I presume for folks in our generation, just something that we haven't yet experienced in our lifetime, but something right. that plan for or, or look forward to. Is there an equivalent for male menopause? So something to look at or think about? That's a great question. I, you know, the, I think women have an advantage because when menopause arrives, it's super obvious, right? By definition, menopause is no menstruation for a year, 12 months, right? So you know, okay, the change has happened. Okay. Men don't really get something as stark like that. Like with age, hormone levels do change for both men and women. So there's no question that like with age, men's hormones levels will decline. Yeah, so what is a hormonal signature for menopause? It's a drop in estrogen, right? It just flattens out. Or, right? So estrogen levels go down, right. and then there's change with follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Okay. So don't quote me on this. Yeah. You might have to edit this out. I believe LH and FSH go up, and okay. they don't go back down. Okay. But don't quote me on that. Okay. But yeah, estrogen levels do go down. Even testosterone levels go down. So essentially the menstruation cycle, it stops. Okay. Yeah. And that's it. And I mean, I'm actually curious, is it more of a hormone driving menopause train or is it just your body runs out of eggs? What, 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 what actually, what, what, yeah, why what, does what menopause it? happen? Yeah, what drives it? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I know certainly at some point ovarian reserve is over, right. but what actually causes the hormonal switch? Like, genetically, right. what are the triggers? I'm actually not sure off the top of my head. Like okay. why someone gets menopause at 45 versus 50 30, yeah. versus, yeah. I, I actually, I'm not sure okay. like what the actual trigger is. Right. Yeah, I wonder if it's like a threshold of ovarian reserves where it's like, okay, at a certain point, it's like. Yeah, that would be a good question for like a um, gynecologist or right. something. Yeah. I'm just wondering, maybe there's an internal sensor where like egg quality is tapping out. There's some way that you're. I should yeah, have probably looked that up yeah. before, but. Okay. 
No, I was just, it was just throwing it out there. It's something I was just like, puzzled, just thinking about. Yeah, but to answer your question, there's no official menopause for men, but the short answer is that, yeah, hormone levels do change with age right. for both genders. Right. And usually it's a crash in testosterone if it lowers and flattens out. And Right, but isn't crash kind of a harsh word? Because I don't actually think testosterone levels ever crash. I think they actually gradually decline. Okay. Yeah. If there was a crash, I think there would be like a well-defined male menopause then, right? Right. Well, I guess like the crash, I, I'm more thinking about an, an extreme environment. This is more with athletes or, okay. or, or, or like endurance environments for, you know, through like PTSD or something. Like oh, testosterone yeah, yeah. like properly crashes. Right. So that's or, like pathological, yeah, that's right? Pathological. So, but in terms of natural, non kind of pathological things, it's like there a linear shouldn't decrease, be a crash. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So I guess with men, it's just more of a linear decline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And one thing that perhaps is, you know, something I've been seeing more recently, perhaps it's, you know, my friends who are, women in their 30s or approaching their 30s, a lot of discussion, especially in Silicon Valley, around egg freezing and yeah. how do you maximize fertility. And then on the men's side, there's always these viral articles where men's sperm counts in modern society are like dropping like crazy. I did read those um, articles. Yeah, so that study- Here's your, yeah. talk about uh, both cases. I mean, those are just probably just especially relevant for- the millennial generation. Right. So uh, the study you're referring to about sort of fertility rates declining in men specifically applied that if you read the paper for that, that was strongly true for men living in Western countries. So like the developed nations. Yeah. And yeah, so there's no question like if there are fertility issues yeah, this could a actually be related to other medical problems, which again, it goes back to the same thing, like getting screened for things that can affect your fertility, yeah. like diabetes, low testosterone, cholesterol issues, or checking of various hormone levels yeah. and whatnot is super important because a male won't actually know he's not fertile until he actually tries to have kids. Right. Same with a woman, right? Yeah, technically, I mean, same yes. with everyone. Yeah. That's true. Right. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I mean, no, it's definitely a real thing. Yeah. Like, it's definitely. Do you have clients that come in or like, hey, like as I as like a relative younger male, like, hey, I'm I'm curious about my sperm count. I read this kind of crazy. At that point, I usually refer them to fertility specialists because okay. they're really good at doing those sort of things. Okay. I don't have the means of like running not, a sperm count in my yeah, clinic. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I would send them to a fertility specialist, and you can easily go to one and get that checked out. Yeah. yeah. You know. Well, it's funny you mention that because a lot of times people always assume that it's the woman who is having the trouble with conceiving, yeah. but that's so not true. The guy plays just as much of a role with it as well. Yeah. And I think it's really important for men to also make sure that they're fertile, yeah, no, especially I mean, if they're planning on having kids. Yeah, I mean, as a relatively relatively young male, I mean, it's, I don't think we really talk about I haven't really talked about it right. to, to people first, but like second, I don't know anyone who has done like a sperm count test. Right. But but I think it is kind of an interesting statistic for, okay, it is strange that like Western, in Western societies, sperm counts are dropping. Right. Is that due to lower overall metabolic fitness? Is that due to plastics in the water? Right, exactly. Do you have right. any sense of, I mean- no one knows. I mean, do you have any hypotheses on why that's happening? So in that study, they don't get into the details. Right. And again, it's it's just observational. Right. So it's not like a super high quality study in right. that respect. So we don't know. 
I mean, we have some ideas. I mean, we as a society are getting fatter. We're getting sicker. Cell phones in the pocket. Yeah, there's a lot of EMF exposure. You know, there are a lot of pesticides in our environment. So there's plenty of things that could be causing this. There's no question about it. A lot of people also, this is an important thing. You know, people think that it's important to be healthy after someone gets pregnant. This applies to a lot of women. Like they think, okay, uh, now that I'm pregnant, it's time to get healthy. But a lot of people don't realize that the state of the baby is pretty much locked in at the time of conception. And the the health of the father plays a big role on the baby's health too. Because all of that DNA- Epigenetics and the sperm are locked in. Exactly. So like, for example- So I presume the epigenetics of the egg is also locked in. Everything on both sides, right? right? And so like, for example, if a male is obese at the time of conception, the child has a greater likelihood of being obese as well. So the point is that if you're thinking about having kids, you need to optimize your health way before so that by the time you actually attempt conception, that is the set of genetic DNA that you want to put into the future child. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy that like the Lamarckian notion of versus Darwin, like Darwin evolution, where like Lamarck says that if like the giraffe keeps stretching its neck, it'll get longer. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's like kind of the epigenetic function in if the male is or the female is healthier, mm-hmm. that passes on to the next generation. Yeah, totally. Which is interesting to see Lamarck's theories actually come back into vogue after the knowledge of epigenetics, which is interesting because Darwin sort of won that initial debate. Hmm. Wow, it's been a while since I've even thought about Lamarck. <laughs> so this is awesome for throwing this back. Yeah, no, I wanted to also just talk about if there was a female analog towards the men's sperm quality decreasing. Is there something like that happening in Western women as well? So, yeah, actually there is, I think. Like egg quality is degrading? Well, I think polycystic ovarian syndrome, also known as PCOS, is is basically an infertility issue, Okay. okay? And it's very common. It's some of the risk factors are, it is basically insulin resistance at the level of the ovaries, Mm -hmm. right? So obesity is a risk factor for it. And part of the treatment involves weight loss and bringing the insulin levels down as well as some other types of medication. But basically in a way, yeah, that is an example of infertility in the modern world, right? Because there is a huge obesity epidemic. PCOS rates are rising. It's one of the ways that you cannot be pregnant. And it's super interesting because my patients who have PCOS, if I put them on a ketogenic diet, I counsel them that, hey, listen, there's a high likelihood you may get pregnant, by the way. So you want to make sure you want that before you do that, right? So like just in case. You're going to be more fertile. Just Yeah. In case. So, yeah. I mean, pregnancy is one of the possible outcomes of reversal <laughs> of PCOS. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 That's wild. So, I mean, I'm just thinking from a macro lens, it's interesting that with a lot of markers, humans are the most successful it's ever been in terms of as, as, as a species. As a species, right. But in terms of individual fertility, it looks like just all of us, you know, generalizing are getting less and less fertile, which is Well, if you strange. think about it, so when we studied biology and ecosystems, right, yeah. what happens in an ecosystem when one of the species begins multiplying a lot, the resources begin to dwindle, and then eventually that species decreases in number, right? Right, the ecosystem crashes, and then, 
Yeah, you get that drop. Right. So I think we're reaching that point where there are limited resources in terms of diet and nutrition. I mean, eating a high-carb diet is the current standard of care. If we switch to like a low-carb, high-fat diet, it would change our entire economic structures. Who knows what food sources would be available, what wouldn't be available. So we're reaching that point now where we're close to saturating our ecosystem, which is the earth. And I think Mother Nature is in a way coming up with ways to regulate that. You know, it's crazy if you think about it. But I don't know if, if that came off as totally whack No, I buy it. I mean, I think there's some truth there where it's like a local maximum, right? I think kind of the way I interpret is that we needed factory farming, a lot of these like grain, carbohydrate-driven nutrition to feed like an exponentially growing population, right? Just like easier to make bread than like make a steak. Right. And now we're seeing some of the detriments of that where like these mass processed foods are actually reducing the fitness of each individual. Exactly. Whereas we're able to supply the whole species, each individual is a little bit weaker. That's exactly the point, Yeah. yeah. So I guess we need to, as individuals and as people, you know, engaging with the community here, hopefully inspire people to increase their own fitness to reverse this decline. Well, it's survival of the fittest, right? That's the laws of nature. That's the way it's always been. So, I mean, it's harsh, but that's the reality. And obviously the individuals out there that are doing something to reverse the PCOS or to reverse their medical issues so that they can maybe potentially have kids or whatever, I mean, there's the advantage, right? right. Versus the populations that aren't. And it's sad and it, it's frustrating as a physician to think about, but I don't know what else, you know? Yeah. But I mean, I think it's funny that you mentioned survival of the fittest, where I think you look at just current fertility rates, it's oftentimes the lower social economic classes that are breeding or creating children faster than the more well-educated. So it's not even really survival of the fittest. It's, I, I mean, you're, you're selecting for people that are, are, for whatever reason, more fertile in terms of producing children. Which, Interesting. Which overlaps more closely with lower educated groups. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like basically you can look like a statistics, like very, very highly educated couples average one to two children. Right. Where the lower social economic classes are averaging, you know, three, four, five plus children. Right. So it's just the Darwinian selection natural selection processes like there is no selection process anymore there's enough resources so that anyone can, can procreate essentially and that is definitely happening yeah on some level well i, I don't know like what as a society can or should the society do something about it because i think that's like the wonders of modern civilization is that we can carry and let people do their individual actions right no and, and I think- let them like at least have some baseline of success rate. Totally. And yeah. I, th- I think you bring up a good point. You know, the, back in the day before kind of modern medicine, many women would die during childbirth, right. right? Having a child was a very life-threatening thing. It was very common to die during childbirth. Right. Now we have technology, C-sections, you know, compl- neonatal ICUs. We have it all, right? right? So we can get people to have kids and keep everyone alive in the process. So what are the consequences of something like that? We have more people, more population, more people on this earth now, more resources being used, all of this. I mean, there are some consequences, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is like, it's just like an experiment that we're just 
in the middle of running. Yeah, this is the experiment. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah, I mean, hopefully it turns out well. I mean, I think there's enough. I don't think it's a point to be pessimistic here. I think there's enough smart people that want to see good for our species. And I think people are working towards that. Agreed. And I think there is also just that the instinctual desire to live longer. And like if the rest of the society is crumbling around you, like that's not going to allow the individual to live longer either. No, so. that will also play a role. Yeah. I know we got to go now, but you know, where do people follow you? Any last words here? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Wally Priyanka. That should be enough. <laughs> yeah, cool. Again, it's always fun to riff and explore these yes. ideas with you. Totally. I'm sure we'll have you back on. We should soon. do it again. Yeah. We'll talk about something else, something <laughs> wild again. Cool. Thanks Thank so much you for the so time. Much. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. As always, please send my producer Zill and I any feedback or topic or guest suggestions to podcast at hvmn.com. We read every single message and work really hard to make this program valuable and educational for you. Also, don't forget our ongoing special offer. By leaving a review on iTunes, you can get a one month supply of our new Omega-3 product, Kato. Simply rate us with a written review on iTunes, screenshot it, and send it out to our email hotline. Again, that email is podcast at hvmn.com. Appreciate the love and support, and I'll see you again next week.